sermon text is found in Luke 14, verses 16 to 24, and I invite you to turn to that. That's on page 874 in your pew Bibles. And uh, Mr. Jordan expressed that this would be an opportunity for me to introduce myself. Uh, wasn't necessary, he said, but, uh, you know, it's always nice to know something about the guy that's going to preach to you for the next few moments. And uh, I'll let you know, first of all, because this will get you all thinking, that I am, over the course of my life, a methopresspalian. We can explain that later. Uh, the most important thing that you need to know about me is that I am a sinner, saved by grace. If my wife were here, I would tell you the second most important thing is that my wife is named Karen. But she is a church organist, and so she is not able to come with me most Sundays. Uh, she wishes she could be here, but she has other responsibilities. There's lots more to know, but that's all you need to know for now. Luke 14, starting at verse 16. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you command has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel the people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. Pray with me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The scripture lesson that I just read to you actually picked up in the middle of a meal. It was a meal at the home of an important man, a Pharisee. Jesus notes a trait of those attending and confronts it through a parable about wedding guests. He tells how one should not assume honor. It is to be bestowed by the host of the gathering. It must have stung those who had come to the Pharisee's house and sought on their own initiative the seats of honor. That was likely most of the invited guests. Jesus didn't stop with teaching the guests good manners and humility. These guests were invited guests. The Pharisee had invited the elite, the rich, 
and the famous. He invited those he thought worthy of special honor to enhance his own reputation and the buzz about this dinner. He was creating a spectacle both with the dinner and those who would attend. He seems to have invited at least some who could reciprocate and perhaps something and do something even better, a kind of quid pro quo. It was a gathering of the rich and famous, perhaps meant to impress Jesus, who was invited to this dinner. Now, Jesus sees all this as a farce, not because things were nicely set out, but because of the nature of the gathering. Jesus not only calls out the guests for their self-serving, honor-seeking egos, but he also tells the host of the dinner he invited them for the wrong reason. And he invited the wrong people. They were only going to cause issues. And you'd have to think, badmouth the host if they didn't get to sit where they wanted to sit. Jesus essentially says to the host, you invited those who won't appreciate what you are offering and won't be thankful for your hospitality and will belittle you for the slightest offense. He sees that these guests think themselves equal or better than their host. Jesus' rebuke of the guests and the host must have stung them their egos and false pretenses. But Jesus is not done. Another guest who had heard all this, and this transpires right before what I read to you, responds with something that you and I would likely agree with. He said, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Of God. Jesus saw something in that statement easy to miss in this dinner scene. In missing it, you miss some of the impact of what Jesus says next. While it sounds like a correct statement, surely those who eat bread in the kingdom of God are blessed. Jesus discerns the guest's intent and immediately challenges the statement with a but. I don't think it says but in the ESV. Your version, it might have said then or now, but they have the same purpose. I like the word but because its translation best helps you understand Jesus's dissatisfaction with this guest's response. Jesus knows what this other guest is up to. It seems to be a spiritual statement. It seems to speak truth to the rebukes that Jesus has spoken. But Jesus realizes this guest sees that he can't defend himself against Jesus' accusation, but he's going to try anyway. The guest is actually saying, I will be eating, I will be eating bread in the kingdom of God because I deserve to be blessed. Can you see his pump, his chest pumped up? Jesus can. 
Jesus sees the same arrogant attitude he just addressed, and he knows how this is used as a self-righteous smokescreen. Many try to express spiritual thoughts when in the presence of a person they deem to be spiritual. If you are known to be a Christian, you probably have heard this type of response when there's an awkward moment. Someone rushes in to turn the moment away from the embarrassment of having sin exposed. They try turning the conversation spiritual to save face. The person was one of the invited guests, one of the elite, wealthy, powerful people that Jesus brought down because of their arrogance and the fact that they thought they deserved the seats of honor. It seems this was an attempt to take the spotlight off the guest, especially that particular guest, trying to make himself look above the rebuke. And Jesus will have none of it. Perhaps you see yourself here. When the truth hits close to home, you have a tendency to shift away from the truth. And what a better dodge than to make it a spiritual, or at least a spiritual-sounding statement. You've heard messages that have made you squirm. You want to shout at the preacher and say, stop meddling and get back to preaching. You know this dinner guest because you are this dinner guest. Jesus is the light of the world and he will shine the light on sin to expose it so that you will seek repentance. It's what God did in the Garden of Eden. Adam and, after Adam's sin, God goes to the garden. He knows Adam is hiding and where, but he exposes Adam's sin so he can apply a remedy. He gracefully asks Adam, where are you? It wasn't about what tree are you hiding behind. It was a moral question of Adam's integrity. Jesus took a similar approach with the Samaritan woman. He tells the woman she has had five husbands in the most gentle rebuke of her adulterous life. Sin must be confronted. Jesus has impeccable credentials to do so, but the scriptures are full of examples of this, especially to those and for those who claim to be Christian. I challenge you to read the, the epistles to the Corinthians. They're scorchers. You are here today, if you are here rightly, because you know you are like this guest. You understand you are a sinner saved by grace, and your depravity is so deep, total really, that there is a residue of sin that you must confront in this life, even though your hatred of God has been turned to love of God. So Jesus is saying to you, but, and you better listen to what he is telling this guest, you really, it's a lesson you need to learn. The wedding feast parable Jesus spoke first at this dinner shows he knew the attitudes, greed, selfishness, the sin of those invited to the dinner. He was living his life because of the sins of men. 
Unlike you and I, his integrity was not corrupted, so he felt the pain of sin completely. He understood the severity of what man makes light of. He knew what was going on here. It troubled him as he saw all the egos at work putting themselves before not just each other, but before God. His suffering included the pain and anguish of knowing what all this means to an all-holy God who created these men to glorify him, not themselves. So at this fabulous dinner, he tells yet another parable about an even more splendid dinner. He is careful to give particulars along the way which make his point crystal clear. He begins by telling you the host was a certain man. You will see he is an exemplary man. This isn't just any rich man. This is a specific man, a man with a reputation. There is no direct statement that tells you what his reputation was, but the certain man reference tells you there was something different about him. And the parable will unfold this. You were told he was preparing a splendid dinner. Now, I don't think Jesus was referring to the feast in the book of Revelation that I read as the first lesson today, because this is an earthly story, so it is an earthly meal. The feast in Revelation is the epitome of a splendid meal, so it was good to read about it. I hope you have all had a splendid dinner. If you can picture a meal served by a staff of people, you're on the right track. This was the kind of meal that this certain man was planning. Not only was this, the meal, was this meal grandiose, the guest list was large. You get the impression when all was said and done that this wasn't all done for self aggrandizement, but for the true pleasure of the guests. This would be the social event of the year, maybe the decade. You can see the man, the master of the house, overseeing all the preparation. The dining area, beautifully set, gorgeous decorations. Perhaps in our thinking, a string quartet or perhaps the period's equivalent. The place setting set by the numbers, the distance between measured and double-checked. The staff in their best livery. Everyone groomed to bring more prestige to this gathering. Now, I suppose given the cooking methods and the need to hunt for fresh food, an exact time could not be provided on the invitation but one can expect and surmise that people knew how to deal with that then. When all was ready, word was sent, come for all things are now ready. Well, with all those sugar plums dancing in your head, you would think 
that everyone would have their first century tuxedos and gowns on, ready and eager to go to this dinner. But that's not what happened. Apparently, though they were eager to accept the invitation, they were now weren't eager to attend. You are told they all with one accord began to make excuses. There was something that put them off. Though they knew the perfection this certain man would offer and the goodness he would provide, they nevertheless weren't above rebuffing him. You aren't given specific details. You are given more of the story, though. Their excuses were all similar. They were of one accord. They not only all declined to come to dinner, they all had similar excuses. Their determination not to attend is obvious by the tone of their excuses. They really didn't care if they had legitimate excuses. They offered up the most lame excuses you can imagine. Perhaps the many invited didn't offer an exclusive enough environment. But they didn't know how many were invited when they got their invitation, and that's why they accepted. You know, they're thinking, I'm better than this one or that one. I'm not going to go to dinner with them. I deserve a more elite type of gathering. He invited everyone. I won't be seen with so-and-so. So you get these lame excuses. I can't come. I just bought a farm, and I need to go see it. I just bought some oxen. I have to go test them. I have a wife and I cannot come. Now these serve as examples of the weak excuses given. You might think one or two of them might have some reasonableness, so let's just take a look at them. I just bought a farm and I have to go see the land. Now I'm not, I'm a city boy, okay? But still, I want to meet this man. You know, I've got 20 acres of swamp that I'd love to sell. And if he'll buy land before he sees it, well, he's just the guy I'm looking for. Really, you have to go see the land that you bought? You didn't know what you bought? I just bought a stable full of oxen, and I need to go test them. I mean no offense to use car salesmen, I know you shouldn't generalize, but honestly, this is the guy the unethical used car salesman wants to find. When you buy a used car, you want to test it before you buy it. Kick the tires, check the oil, look under the hood, take it to a mechanic, get the Carfax. This guy bought a herd of livestock and has no idea of their value, their condition, Their age, nothing. Caveat emptor, let the buyer beware, needs to be pounded into these first two characters' heads. These are not honest excuses. They are just go away and leave me alone excuses. Then the last one, a real doozy. I've just gotten married and I cannot come. You can see the servant sent to tell them to come, standing there with his jaw dropped. Huh? Perhaps his new wife has persuaded him not to go. Matthew Henry points out, 
as the first Adam told God, the woman persuaded me to eat, this Adam says, the woman persuaded me not to eat. Another excuse with no substance, just contempt for the host and his preparation. Now these excuses may hit close to home. Jesus has invited you to come to dinner. He will provide you with a white wedding garment, garment, his purity and righteousness. This dinner isn't the one of revelation, however. This is the daily communion that Jesus wants you to have with him. This is an everyday story. The honor of sitting at Jesus' feet and learning to walk closer to Jesus, to live the Christian life, you should. You would know this invitation to be a time of daily devotions. A time to fellowship with Jesus, dedicated to him alone, and the bounty of the Bible's feast for you. But then there are the excuses. You know them. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll come to the table later, uh, Lord. I've, I've got something urgent that needs to be done right now. That's probably a reflection of poor priorities rather than a truly urgent matter. And look, there's a myriad of other excuses. They sound like the description Jesus gives in this parable. They all with one accord began to make excuses. They are strangely of the same nature. Lame, lazy, self-centered, and falling short of the glory of God, your purpose in being here. I know because I have a similar list of lame excuses. You also have a list of excuses for not putting into action the things that you learn when you do come to the table and commune with Jesus. You and I are just like these losers. Remember, you were happy to get the invitation, but now there's actually the need to commit and achieve and do. So when it's not extremely convenient, you you blurt out, I can't do that now. I have to go check out the farm that I have just bought but haven't seen. At this point, the parable is really a hopeless scene. It's pathetic beyond compare. It annoys you until you see you are these invited guests. Jesus lays it on the line. If God isn't first, then he is last. And you are first. That breaks my heart, and I hope it breaks yours. That's why you are here today. To be challenged and encouraged to not be a loser, to not despise the dinner when you joyfully received the invitation. Jesus, therefore, doesn't stop here. 
There's more to this parable for you and me to see why the host is a certain man, a special man, a better man. The servant reports these no-shows to the master of the house. And you are told the master becomes angry. There is a righteous anger. And this is an excellent example of it. It doesn't seek retribution. Though those who didn't come will not taste this supper. Rather, it seeks a, a remedy. The master redeems the situation. He tells the servant, go quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Quickly! Right now, don't hesitate. The meal is ready and will not be wasted. The host wants people at this feast. He's not a respecter of persons. Those invited don't want to come, then go out and find those who will. This certain man knew who would appreciate what he had prepared. Go find whoever. Go into the highways and the hedges. Find the weak, the broken, the infirm, the untouchables by most people's standards. Bring them in. Compel them to come. The host made a feast to be enjoyed. He made it to see people rejoice and be glad. These new guests will do just that. They will be glad and more for the opportunity to sit at this table, the master's table, and enjoy the food that will not only feed the body, but more, it will feed the soul. <clears throat> Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, Jesus says. Isaiah says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy. And eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. A few times in this message of this parable, you have seen how Jesus points out your failures, your sin. You seek your pleasure first. You seek the place of honor that alone belongs to God. You make excuses for not growing in the Lord as you have been told to do. You have seen your selfishness. You have seen how you are sinners, and you have seen how your broken, sinful nature, the residue of your, the sin in your life, isn't an impediment to the Master, Jesus. He compels you, despite your impediments, 
to come to the table, to feast at the table, to do so not on your merit, but on the mercy and the redeeming nature of the master of the house. So come, knowing you are a sinner and that Jesus died for your sins. Come knowing you have failed at every turn to be the person that God wants you to be, but Jesus never failed, never sinned, so he could reconcile you and the Father. Come out of gratitude for what God has done, for without Jesus you would not have been invited to this feast. Come knowing you are undeserving, but Jesus stands as a human being in his risen body before the Father, and Jesus represents you there, the Father seeing a righteous man. Come sorry for your sins, for Jesus in this very account has made your sins clear so that you know you must repent. Come, knowing you are the spiritually poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind, but that you are a new creature in Christ. Come knowing Jesus, the Master, has sought you on the streets, lanes, highways, and hedges as a mercy of his redemption, of his grace. Come, because Jesus has stood at the door of your heart and knocked so that he could dine with you. Then you will know that you are the honored guests at the master's table. Pray with me. Lord, you have set before us a bountiful table. It is the word of God, the very words of life. We could feast on them endlessly and never know them, and live them all as we should. But you have given us opportunity to study them privately, to study them corporately, to read them, to learn them, to inwardly digest them, so that we can be what we are called Christians, little Christs, that we can bring honor and glory to your name and that the world, which so desperately needs to hear your word, will hear it from our lives and see it expressed in our lives. So though we do not deserve it, 
though we are the least of the least, we rejoice that in this parable, you have shown us that those that you have invited who are not worthy are indeed the honored guests at your table. We pray these things to the honor and the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.